the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock. Imagine that. It was seven minutes after four o'clock yesterday. The day before that, we started. You guessed it, seven minutes after four. So why do I mention it each time? I don't really know. Uh, anyway, James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Glad to have you with us. Today we are going to talk with uh, Dean Reuter. He is the uh, co-author of The Hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. He writes about a man whose name I was completely unfamiliar with, as is the case for most of us. Uh, when you uh, are talking about Nazi Germany and whether or not the United States harbored this individual who purportedly committed suicide is the subject of the book. And for what purpose this hidden Nazi um, was uh, was held is the subject we'll be talking about. It's really quite fascinating. And uh, it has to do with uh, the Fourth Reich money that was um, uh, hidden away as well as a nuclear program that he was uh, charged with overseeing. And we'll get into all of that when he joins us later this hour. Also, I wanted to say thank you for your generosity with uh, Union Gospel Mission Radiothon yesterday. I know some of you gave financially. Others of you are praying for the organization. Thank you for that. Appreciate it so much. And it will make a difference in our community in the days ahead. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines from the last two days, diplomat, uh, a diplomat testified that the president used Ukraine aid uh, in a quid pro quo fashion, this is acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. He testified unequivocally Tuesday that the president pushed Ukraine to investigate both election interference and a company linked to former Vice President Joe Biden's son. Well, at least that's what was leaked from the hearing. We don't know if he was cross-examined. We don't know what else was said, what the context was, because these are secret hearings. But we are told that he was willing to hold up military aid in a White House meeting to get a public announcement from the country that the probes were underway. In his opening remarks, the House lawmakers uh, obtained uh, uh, Taylor's voiced his apparent frustration that the administration was undercutting his personal policy preference for providing robust aid to Ukraine. In an interview with Laura Ingram on Tuesday's uh, program, host uh, minority leader Kevin McCarthy said Representative John Ratcliffe, a Texas Republican and member of both the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees, destroyed Taylor's testimony with his questioning in 90 seconds. However, McCarthy claimed House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff is not allowing lawmakers to speak too specifically about the proceedings. So we don't know what's actually happening. All we know is the selective leaks that we're getting. The Hong Kong government on Wednesday said it formally withdrew its controversial extradition bill that sparked months of violent protests, but will reportedly be the fulfillment of only one demand out of five by protesters who continue to take to the streets there. I now formally announce the withdrawal of the bill, Secretary of State John Lee told the city's legislature. 
Not quite enough, however. Hundreds of thousands have taken to the streets since June, originally due to the bill that would have allowed Hong Kong nationals to be sent to mainland China to be tried in Communist Party-controlled court. The rallies have continued, and now protesters demand political reforms and police accountability. Keep in mind that in Hong Kong, the clock is ticking. The agreement was that they would have a degree of autonomy, but only for a limited period of time. U.S. Attorney John Durham's investigation into the origins of the FBI's 2016 Russia probe have expanded based on new evidence uncovered during recent trip to Rome with Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, The source said that Durham was very interested to question former uh, Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and former CIA Director John Brennan, an anti-Trump critic who recently dismissed the idea. The two Obama appointees uh, from that administration were at the helm when the unverified and largely discredited Steele dossier written by British ex-spy Christopher Steele and funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and Democratic National Committee was used to justify a secret surveillance warrant against former Trump advisor Carter Page. Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard assailed Hillary Clinton in a new campaign video on Tuesday and demanded that the former Secretary of State step down from her throne. Hillary, your foreign policy was a disaster for our country and the world, resulting in the deaths and injuries of so many of my brothers and sisters in uniform, devastating entire countries, millions of lives lost, refugee crises and more, Gabbard said. Yet despite the damage you have done to our country and the world, you want to continue your failed policies directly or indirectly through the Democratic nominee. She added, it's time for you to acknowledge the damage you have caused and apologize for it. It is long past due for you to step down from your throne so the Democratic Party can lead with a new foreign policy, which will actually be in the interests of and benefit the American people and the world. End quote. Well, Gabbard's new video is the latest development in a feud that erupted last week when Hillary Clinton suggested in an interview without evidence that the congresswoman from Hawaii was a favorite of the Russians and claimed Russians were grooming her to be the third party candidate in the 2020 presidential election. The war of words was fueled spec or rather has fueled speculation that Clinton is considering jumping into the race and making a third bid for the White House. I mean, why not? The former vice president has done just that. Speaking of whom, Joe Biden offered an apology late Tuesday for previously referring to the 1998 Clinton impeachment as a partisan lynching using the L word just hours after he condemned President Trump for referring to his own impeachment with the same term. Trump was widely criticized for claiming on Twitter that Republicans were witnessing a lynching. Several 2020 Democrats piled on the president, including the 2020 front uh, co-frontrunner. However, CNN unearthed an interview with Biden uh, that he did on the network in 98, where he used the same term he blasted Trump for, as did about a half dozen African-American lawmakers and other Democrats at that time. The country's top prosecutor probing big tech left the door open to breaking up the biggest names in Silicon Valley. Markin Del Rayen, head of the Justice Department's antitrust division, said on Tuesday that breaking up companies such as Google, Facebook or Amazon is perfectly on the table. While speaking at the Wall Street Journal Tech Live Summit, the Wall Street Journal reported that um, Del Rayen uh, laid out a worst case scenario for big tech as the Justice Department's wide ranging antitrust review, which began over the summer continues. Russia and Turkey have agreed to ensure Kurdish forces withdraw from areas close to Syria's border with Turkey and to launch joint patrols in a deal hailed as historic by President Erdogan. 
And do-nothing Congress. Pelosi, Democrats, produce more subpoenas than laws this time around. The Ninth Circuit upholds uh, a block on birth control exemption for religious employers. And Senate Republican Josh Hawley is introduced bipartisan legislation empowering users to withdraw their data from social media giants. Tech companies are accelerating their exodus from China. And for the first time, there are fewer wealthy Americans than wealthy Chinese. California governor has uh, who wanted higher gas prices. Well, he wants investigation of the higher gas prices he's actually gotten. And there were signs whites only that caused outrage until, well, the school discovered who actually produced those signs. Well, it turns out the signs were put up by a black trans group who wanted attention. The school went from outrage to, well, investigating. In fact, the culprits aren't even mentioned in the story, ABC. But they are in this one at Madison 365 that just that downplayed them because they are part of a protest by students of color. So apparently, if you are a student of color, uh, you can falsify information. And that's perfectly all right, which is, by the way, extremely condescending, says a person of color. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, uh, 16 minutes after four o'clock. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. Also, later this hour, we'll talk with Dean Reuter, the hidden Nazi, the untold story of America's deal with the devil. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Dean Reuter, author of The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. We're winding our way through some of the news headlines from the last couple of days. Well, hours after dozens of Republicans stormed a closed-door deposition in a secure area and disrupted Democrats' Trump impeachment inquiry, top House GOP leaders pushed Democrats for more transparency, including public testimony from the whistleblower at the center of the probe. In an initial letter on Wednesday, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, Republican lawmakers Jim Jordan of Ohio, Devin Nunez of California, and Michael McCall of Texas pushed for the whistleblower to come out of hiding so that his or her sources and credibility can be fully assessed. The three Republicans noted that Schiff had previously promised the whistleblower would provide unfiltered testimony very soon concerning an August 12th complaint. But the Republicans charged Schiff reversed course after reports of the whistleblower's potential political bias surfaced. And apparently there's more information about that that has emerged today. Well, the whistleblower at the center of the uh, impeachment inquiry acknowledged to the intelligence community inspector general that uh, bias against the president might be alleged against him or her for a third previously unreported reason. However, the nature of this alleged potential bias remains unclear, perhaps a better word, unknown. Um, It was previously reported that the whistleblower is a registered Democrat, had prior work history with senior uh, Democrat. The whistleblower has insisted the complaint was not politically motivated. Critics note, however, that the whistleblower met with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff's staff before the complaint was formally filed back in August. President Trump announced on Wednesday that conditions have been met between Turkey and the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic forces for what he called a permanent ceasefire between the two sides, and that the United States was lifting sanctions on Ankara that were implemented following the invasion of northern Syria. Speaking at the White House, the president said that while a permanent ceasefire will be tough to maintain in the volatile region, he hopes it will last and end the conflict between Turkey 
and the Kurds. The president delivered the statement amid bipartisan criticism over his recent decision to pull back U.S. forces from northern Syria, opening the door for Turkey to launch a military offensive. The president said that nearly all U.S. troops will be leaving Syria, but some will remain to safeguard oil fields there. Senator Lindsey Graham, a staunch Trump ally who vehemently opposed the president's troop withdrawal plan, said he prayed the ceasefire will hold and pleaded with the president on Wednesday to listen to his military commanders and not policy shop civilians regarding the ongoing conflict in Syria. New York State and five others reached a $700 million settlement on Wednesday with drug distributor Reckitt Binkheiser following a probe into the company's role in the nation's ongoing opioid epidemic, according to the New York Attorney General uh, Letitia James. The $700 million payment is a part of a larger $1.4 billion settlement that had been agreed upon back in July over allegations the drug distributor had improperly advertised a drug to treat opioid addiction. Claims against Record um, Binkheiser, former pharmaceutical business, uh, Indivivior alleged that the uh, company carried out an illegal scheme to boost the sale of the drug Sabonox, uh, an opioid addiction treatment drug. The late Representative Elijah Cummings uh, will lie in state in uh, uh, Statuary Hall at the Capitol ahead of his funeral in Baltimore on Friday. That's uh, taken place throughout the day today. Lawmakers from both parties uh, spoke in remembrance of the House Oversight Committee chairman at a Statuary Hall arrival ceremony this morning, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and Representative Mark Meadows, former Presidents uh, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, uh, were uh, speaking as well, uh, rather will speak at uh, Representative uh, Cummings' funeral on Friday. Cummings, a longtime congressman, civil rights leader, and frequent foe of President Trump, died on the 17th of this month at age 68 after complications from longstanding health problems. Democrats set December for the impeachment target, but obstacles abound, like the fact that the whole thing uh, is uh, not yet made public and there hasn't been an actual vote. Soros-funded uh, group Open Society Policy Center eclipsed $70 million spent on lobbying since uh, the president took office. And bipartisan uh, bill would be would streamline the path to citizenship for children of U.S. military uh, personnel. That's pending. And ha- the House unanimously passed a bipartisan bill to make animal cruelty a federal crime. Animal cruelty, a federal crime. Well, it certainly should not be encouraged, but you uh, you can take some comfort in the fact that abortion of all types is still staunchly guarded and promoted across the country. State Department, uh, the State Department says about 100 plus ISIS prisoners have been are missing after the Turkish invasion of Syria. And the Texas governor announced an investigation into the case of a mother transitioning her seven year old son against that son's father's wishes. And a majority of Americans want the First Amendment rewritten. Oh, God help us if in the 21st century we rewrite the First Amendment. 51% of millennials want fines or jail time for hate speech, which they, of course, themselves will define. Florida Senate has voted to permanently oust Broward Sheriff Scott Israel for his actions. And that pretty much rounds out the headline news. But on this day in history, 1861, President Abraham Lincoln in Washington receives the first transcontinental telegraph message sent by Chief Justice Stephen Field of California from San Francisco over a line built by the Western Union Telegraph Company. That was big news at the time. On this day in 1940, the 40-hour work week goes into effect under the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. 
Seems like kind of a uh, ho-hum today, but before that date, this date, 1940, hours were much longer. On this day in 1945, the United Nations officially comes into existence as its charter takes effect. On this day in history, 1962, a naval quarantine of Cuba ordered by President John F. Kennedy goes into effect during the missile crisis. On this day in 1972, Jackie Robinson, who'd broken Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947, dies in Stamford, Connecticut at age 53. Still a young man. On this date in 1989, former television evangelist Jim Baker is sentenced by a judge in Charlotte, North Carolina, to 45 years in prison for fraud and conspiracy. The sentence would later be reduced to eight years and then further reduced to four for good behavior. And finally, on this day in 2005, civil rights icon Rosa Parks dies in Detroit. She was 92 Well, the president announced on Wednesday that conditions have been met between Turkey and the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, for what he called a permanent ceasefire between the two sides and that the United States is lifting sanctions on Ankara that were implemented following the invasion of northern Syria. Speaking at the White House, the president said that while a permanent ceasefire will be tough to maintain in the volatile region, he hopes it will last and end the conflict between Turkey and the Kurds. Mm, Good luck with that. I do believe it will be permanent. He said this was an outcome created by us, the United States and nobody else. We've done everything. We've done something very, very special End quote. Well, time will tell if that is, in fact, the case. The president delivered the statement with bipartisan criticism over his recent decision to pull back U.S. forces. We've saved the lives of many, many Kurds, um, he said. The administration had sought to halt the fighting. The ceasefire required Kurdish forces formerly allied with the United States against the Islamic State group to move out of a roughly 20-mile zone on the Turkish border. With Kurdish forces uh, out of the zone, Turkey will halt its assault, the president said. He added that if Turkey breaches the ceasefire, the sanctions will be reimposed, or at least could be. The sanctions are lifted unless something happens that we're not happy with, he added. His statement follows an early morning tweet where he announced a safe zone along the um, Turkey-Syrian border and voiced optimism after the initial 120-hour pause in the Turkish military operation ended. And whether or not that actually ended is uh, subject to some debate, but ceasefire has held and combat missions have ended, the president said, or tweeted, capturing ISIS prisoners secured. The U.S. withdrawal was followed immediately by Turkish aggression, and the president faced criticism from both Democrats and Republicans who blamed him for allowing the violence to go unchecked and leaving Kurdish allies to fend for themselves. Turkey and Russia reached an agreement on Tuesday that would transform the map for northeast Syria, installing their forces along the border and filling the void left by the abrupt withdrawal of U.S. troops. Well, we're just about out of time in this segment, so I don't want to start something, but I do want to let you know that coming up in this next segment, a fascinating look at the hidden Nazi. Now, you might wonder, who are we talking about? Well, that's how most people would respond. The name is not familiar, but his deeds and the outcome of those deeds, perhaps better known. The untold story of America's deal with the devil. Dean Reuter will be my guest in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, he was among the worst of the Nazis. He was responsible for the construction of Hitler's slave labor sites and concentration camps. He personally altered the design of Auschwitz to increase crowding, ensuring that epidemic diseases would complement the work of the gas chambers. So pleased was Hitler by his work 
that he put him in charge of the Nazi rocket and nuclear weapons program. At the end of the war, he had more power than SS chief Heinrich Himmler. Yet why has the world never heard this man's name, General Hans Kammler? Through decades of investigation, my next guest, Dean Reuter, along with his co-authors, Colm Lowry and Keith Chester, present The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil, a work that unveils the shocking true story, not only of, of Kamler's suicide, that it was faked, but that he escaped exposure and justice through a secret deal with the United States. Kamler never met justice and was hidden from public view. But to what end? Did he cooperate with uh, Nuremberg prosecutors investigating Nazi war crimes? Was he protected so the United States could benefit from his intimate knowledge of the Nazi rocket program and Germany's secret weapon? Well, we're going to talk about that. Dean Reuter is general counsel, vice president and director of the practice groups of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy. He has overseen criminal investigations for two federal offices of the inspector general and was the editor of Liberty's Nemesis, the unchecked expansion of the state and confronting terror, 9-11 and the future of American national security. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. Dean Reuter, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Georgie. This really is a fascinating book about someone I knew nothing about. The name was not familiar. I mean, we know the collective deeds of Nazi Germany and its uh, its leaders. But this particular individual, I knew nothing of, which surprised me. I mean, not that I know everything. How did you select this individual and um, to write about and to bring his story to our attention? Oh, it's a great question to start off. I got involved in this book project because uh, two researchers, the other gentleman you mentioned mm-hmm. who are on the cover of the book, Keith Chester and Colm Lowry, one of them I've known from college, so 30 years ago. He approached me about a dozen years ago with this fabulous tale uh, that I didn't believe, but I didn't have to believe because all he wanted from me was a collaboration agreement as a lawyer so that he could share research with Dr. Colm Lowry, who he'd found in a World War II forum online. Uh, so I was involved as a friend and a lawyer just drafting an agreement so they could share information. Uh, and he continued to tell me stories about this all-powerful, all-evil Nazi general, and I was as surprised as as you were, as you just expressed. This is fantastic. I thought he was sort of misreading the documents, Mm -hmm. maybe. There couldn't be a story that was this powerful and this big and this consequential from World War II, 70-plus years ago, uh, that hasn't already been fully told. Um, So I I began this project with a lot of skepticism. Uh, So I didn't select this man, to answer your question directly. He sort of selected us. Um, My my two co-authors and my researchers selected me. uh, And and I went from being a skeptic to being the the principal author of the book. Well, let's begin by getting a little history of who General Hans Kammler uh, was. He certainly gained the favor of Adolf Hitler, as I mentioned briefly a few moments ago. Who was he and how did he work his way up the ranks? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, he, he was born in 1901 in what is now Poland um, and led a pretty unexceptional life uh, early on. His uh, the, the major data points for us were that he became a man in World War One, and his father and he were both anti-communist. That was uh, how he was raised. He was as stunned as anyone when Germany unexpectedly lost World War One, uh, and then suffered like other Germans did under the Treaty of Versailles, uh, and the whole world did through an economic collapse in the 1920s. 
So by 1930, um, he's getting a PhD in engineering. He was an engineer and an architect by training. Uh, he gets married, and then before Hitler even becomes chancellor, he joins the Nazi party. And before Hitler even becomes president, he joins the dreaded SS, the Schutzstaffel. Uh, so he was an ardent Nazi, an early adherent to Nazi ideology, uh, not just sort of a follower, but a leader. Um, and um, he went on to do some fairly benign uh projects uh, before the war and in the early couple years of the war. He was doing civil engineering projects, irrigation and drainage and an and automobile test track for the police. But ultimately, as you suggested in your opening, he gets uh, elevated more and more, in part because he had these credentials. He was trusted by Hitler's inner circle because he was an early Nazi. Um, and then he went into the Luftwaffe, which was the trusted part of the German military, at least in Hitler's eyes. Uh, so he, ha he had this golden ticket in terms of his credentials, and he kept uh, jumping up the ranks. And when they looked about for somebody to implement uh, the Holocaust, uh, Kamler was their guy. He, he made rapid advances in efficiency and effectiveness and standardization uh, and processes in his other construction projects. And he ran those you know, cradle to grave, so to speak. So he knew everything about how to build, where to build, getting materials, getting funding, uh, everything soup to nuts. And when they wanted to build up the uh, the Holocaust and, and build out the Holocaust, Hans Kammler was the guy they turned to. How did he manage to keep his name off of the lips of those who know that history very well, who followed it at the time and certainly since? Uh, how did he manage to escape notice by those who... Uh, have uh, studied and written about the the um, Second World War in such great detail? Well, it's a great question, and uh, that was just as vexing. It's because, frankly, at the end of the war, he committed suicide. Uh, and his wife, who had five, uh, three children at the time, uh, had him adjudicated dead by a German court. So the official story is uh, that this is a dead man, and everyone lost interest. Um, we, in fact, doing the research for this book, we contacted the United States uh, Department of Justice, Office of Spe Special Investigation, which is our Nazi hunting group. We contacted the Mossad. We contacted the Wiesenthal Center and found that none of them pursued him uh, because he was dead. Um, and uh, But the idea that he committed suicide, once we understood his biography and his drive and his ardency, his commitment, his loyalty, the idea of a suicide didn't make sense to, to any of the three of us who worked on this project, the hidden Nazi. Uh, so we were convinced that he hadn't committed suicide, and we went about to prove it. And in the book, The Hidden Nazi, we do prove that. Uh, well, but that accounts for why he was never pursued. He was lost to history because he was the, dead. One of the things that makes this such an interesting book is that fact. It was presumed that he had committed suicide, but there seems to be evidence to suggest that not only did he not end his own life, but that the United States had possession of him and discovering the reason behind that for what length of time, where and all of that makes this really an interesting uh, story. You had an opportunity to interview Hans Kammler's son firsthand. He was on his deathbed in Germany. Was that very instructive about whether or not his father actually lived or uh, just understanding who um, Hans Kammler was? 
I think it was an essential part in understanding who he was and how he was perceived by his family. Um, but it wasn't instructive in some major ways. It was clear to me uh, that this uh, Jörg Kamler was the son's name, um, and he was elderly by the time I met him a few years mm-hmm. ago and, inter- and interviewed him. Um, he was looking to me for information. It was his mother that had, had his father adjudicated dead by a court, but it was clear the family never really believed that story. That was sort of a convenient thing, and I think it was something of a smokescreen uh, to have him uh, you know, adjudicated dead. But they knew that um, you know, the common practice, the required practice in the war was to return an officer's identity disc, their dog tags, uh, return their sidearm and their papers. Um, and that wasn't done. There was never a body found. There was no gravesite, even despite port post-war searches for a gravesite. And Hans Kammler was an Obergruppenführer, which for your listeners, as we explained in The Hidden Nazi, that's the highest rank you can achieve in the SS. It's, it's equivalent to George Patton. So the idea that he, he's dead without a body being produced is like losing George Patton's body in, in, in battle and not returning with it and never being able to find it. Um, so when we interviewed his son, when I interviewed his son, he, he clearly didn't buy the suicide story, and he wanted to know what proof we had that his father had lived on. Mm. Because if that's the case, put yourselves in the, in the shoes of, of his children, he'd abandon his family if he hadn't committed suicide. Now, you um, were able to uncover government documents that proved that Hans Kammler was in U.S. custody for months after the war's end uh, and uh, after he his suicide had been declared, although unconfirmed. Yes. Uh, we we have the documents and we present them in the book. They're actually in the Hidden Nazi book. Several of these documents are photographed and presented as photographs in in the text of the book. Uh, so the proof is all right there for the for the readers. Um, and I was I was stunned by all this. By the way, <laughs> I mean it really is a a a a jarring sort of series of events. We 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 always thought that he had struck a deal with the Americans because we had orders. We had. Uh, proof of him moving technology throughout Germany and then delivering it to the United States. And that all indicated, okay, he did that to try and rehabilitate himself and save his own skin. But then why does he commit suicide at the end of the war? That story didn't hang together until you realize he lived, he didn't commit suicide. And then the idea that he turned over all this technology to to clear his own name and to rehabilitate himself makes a lot of sense. And that's uh, that's what we explain in the book, The Hidden Nazi. We're going to take a break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book titled The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. My guest, Dean Reuter, will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about a fascinating book, many years in the making, The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. My guest, Dean Reuter. Before we talk about the fate of this uh, unknown player in Nazi Germany, uh, let's talk about some of the things that um, uh, that he actually did. Uh, uh, he can't use the excuse, I was just following orders. He was actually giving orders. Tell us a little bit about his... Um, his record of um, of misdeeds, if you will, General Hans Kammler. Uh, sure, it's it's 
pretty abysmal, but uh, and I present all this in in, in the yes. book, Hidden Nazi. He really did make the the Holocaust uh, ho- uh, possible. He he was the person who identified Auschwitz as the site for the main camp, the first big camp, and doubled and redoubled the size of a camp that already existed. Um, he designed the standard concentration camps barracks, overruling his subordinates' di- design for brick barracks. He decided we'd make these mass-produced, cheap wooden barracks. Uh, the architectural drawings are in his hand with his signature at the bottom. There's a, 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 a note in the margin that there's 550 people that are supposed to be crammed into each of these barracks. And there's just a stroke of a pen through that number, and the number 774 is written over it. Um, so what was already too crowded is just increased by 30, 30% with a stroke of a pen. Um, and he was doing all this work hands-on. Uh, he wasn't just pushing paper from from Berlin. He was visiting these camps incessantly, barking orders. His his inferiors feared that he would shoot them if they didn't perform well. His nickname was Stabvok, which is dust cloud, which sort of describes his frantic pace going from one camp to another. So not just Auschwitz, but camps throughout the Reich. Um, and then once the camps were built out, he turned to uh, designing the gas chambers and the ovens. Uh, and again, we have document after document with his signature uh, talking about fine-tuning these uh, mechanisms of death. And he, he did it, I mean, just in remarkably cold uh, but efficient ways where he would have design buildings so there'd be a gas chamber in the basement uh, and an elevator to uh, uh, crematoria above. Um, and he had the sick prisoners delivered by rail to the right to the right to the gas chambers, and the healthy prisoners were to walk to a further camp, the slave labor camp. Um, and and he was admired by his colleagues for his ruthlessness and his efficiency. Uh, the, the quotes we have from from mm. other people yes. are just astounding. And these are people who are themselves steeped in murder uh, and death. Think that this guy is the worst of the worst. And then he went on from 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 there to to sort of invent Germany's slave labor trade. So those are really the hallmarks of his his sort of perverse, deviant uh, behavior. Hitler was very pleased by his work. He was put in charge of the Nazi rocket and nuclear weapons program. And it's also been said that uh, he and others made uh, efforts uh, through perhaps um, taking money um, away uh, to establish the Fourth Reich. Now, someone of this sort of notorious background, we would assume that you would want to confirm that he did, in fact, end his own life, and you certainly would not want to partner with him. As the book points out, he never met justice, was hidden from public view. Um, but to what end? Why would the United States harbor someone like this? And I think your book is convincing because you have records that detail how the United States had him in uh, their custody for uh, a period of time. To what end? Sure. You mentioned uh, that that he ends up, by the end of the war, because he's so proficient in everything else, he ends up in charge of all of Germany's secret weapons. And your listeners who are students of the war, they know that uh, long before the war was over, it was known that Germany was going to lose the war. But even so, uh, Hitler was whispering and, and Goebbels was whispering in speeches about wonder, this wonder weapon, these vengeance weapons that were going to come on the field of battle and maybe reverse the course of the war. These were the rockets, the German V1 
and V-2 rocket. Um, and once the V-2 rocket was tested successfully, Kamler and, and Himmler reached out and seized that project, made it their own. That's how Kamler uh, got in charge of it. Uh, this was a supersonic liquid-fueled rocket um, that was so far ahead of its time, it really didn't seem to belong on a World War II battlefield. And everybody wanted this rocket when the war was over. There was going to be this mad scramble for this direly important uh, technology. Um, and, it, and and we got the rocket team. The United States got the German rocket team, the vast majority of the, of the scientists. Everybody thinks we sort of got them by accident. Um, but it was Kamler who delivered them. And this is the rocket team that got us to the moon. But more importantly, it's the same technology that became our ICBM and, and helped us win the Cold War. I think that if we didn't get the rocket team, uh, the geopolitical landscape today would look a lot different. Um, and we show the documents. This team was um, on the northern shore of, of Germany, on the Baltic coast. The Russians are approaching in January of 1945. Kamler signs in order to move them to the German interior. Uh, a month later, we have what's called the Yalta Agreement. It's the division of German territory by the Allies after the war. They're already talking about who's going to get what. And this, the site for this rocket team is going to be in the Russian zone. So Kamler moves them again. And... Uh, puts them on his own train, the Vengeance Express, and sends them down to Bavaria, right into the hands of the advancing U.S. Army. Uh, and we think that's all part of the Kamler deal, as we say in, in, in the hidden Nazi, the book. Was there a price uh, that he paid? Uh, I mean, he, obviously he was useful to the United States weapons program, but was there a price exacted? You had an opportunity, for example, to talk with a Holocaust survivor who gave testimony, or, or I should say gave testimony, of Kamler's uh, death camps and the enduring impact that that has, has had. Obviously, he was useful, but was there a price paid? Well, so we know he was in custody for 10 to 12 months after the war, and then he just vanishes. Uh, so, I mean, and we, we in the book, uh, we're very clear when we're talking about something we know mm -hmm. uh, and then something that we're speculating about. So we do spin out a couple different scenarios about what ultimately happened to him. The last thing in the file is a request from Great Britain. This is 10 months after he committed suicide, quote unquote. Great Britain's asking for him from us. Uh, they want him extradited. Uh, and there's a note to the file from the Americans saying we don't object to the extradition. And then he just vanishes. It's, it's as if he'd never existed. Um, uh, so you really have to read the book to figure yes. out what we think is the, is the most likely scenario. But uh, the bottom line is he never faced justice. You're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, having said that, uh, we're very careful not to try and second guess the decisions made by the Americans on the ground in, in making the trade. Um, because those, those, that weapons technology was so consequential. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure we'd live in the free country that we all enjoy today if if, if we hadn't had those uh, scientists on our side. Yeah, as frustrating as it is to consider that he didn't face justice, it's important, and you provide context, the broader context, with, you know, sitting from the vantage point of the 21st century looking back, it's easy to draw conclusions that uh, don't uh, regard what was happening at the time. But it is very uh, frustrating to, to think of someone like him who didn't face uh, justice, I mean, in this life. <laughs> Um, no doubt. One of the things that you also write about was um, that he uh, apparently was charged with and um, had access to money, maybe stolen money, uh, that was uh, set aside to establish the Fourth Reich. Um, as far as we know, he would not have had the freedom to have moved forward with that sort of plan. But your thoughts on 
on his role in um, in making extensive preparations uh, for the establishment of a Fourth Reich. Sure. It's very clear, as, as we show in The Hidden Nazi, that there were plans made, developed, and executed for a Fourth Reich. Um, there was a meeting in the fall of 1944, so eight or ten months before the war's over, with high government officials and German industrialists. And the, the, the message in that meeting was to take all your gold, move it offshore, take all your technology, move it outside the Reich, all in anticipation of a resurgence of Nazi Germany. And if you look at the arc of history, Germany was suddenly and unexpectedly defeated in World War I, yet they rose again. So it's natural to expect with, you know, on the eve of their next defeat, they would lay a plan to rise again. And that's exactly what they did. Um, and Hans Kammler played a, a critical role in that. We even found a 1953 CIA report that shows tens of thousands of Germans in in uh, Argentina. And this CIA report reads like um, an alarm bell, uh, fear that there was a resurgent Nazi Germany being planned from there because there were tens of thousands of people. There were places that looked like Bavarian villages with German cafes and culture, even German Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, lots of technology down there. And they were afraid that, that Nazi Germany would rise again. Of course, that never happened. But um, it's fascinating. And, and this story's never been told that Germany really concretely laid those plans and then executed them. Well, it is absolutely fascinating. The book, once again, is uh, titled The Hidden Nazi, The Untold Story of America's Deal with the Devil. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing others comment on uh, the book once they've had the opportunity to read it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Georgie. By the, by the way, the book is published by Regnery History and is available in bookstores. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is the time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Well, House Republicans, led by Representative Matt Gates, a Republican out of Florida on Wednesday, essentially stormed a closed door session. Uh, connected to the impeachment investigation of the president, prompting House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff to suspend the proceedings in a remarkable scene. Well, the standoff happened after lawmakers held a press conference uh, Wednesday morning where they accused House Democrats of a lack of transparency. We're going to try to go in there and we're going to try to fight out uh, what's going on or figure out what's going on on behalf of the millions of Americans that we represent that want to see this Congress working for them and not obsessed with attacking the president who we believe has not done anything to deserve impeachment, Gates said. Well, the Republicans uh, specifically called out Schiff, who is leading the investigation. What is Adam Schiff trying to hide? Asked the minority uh, whip Steve Scalise. I think that's the question so many people have, so many of my colleagues have, so many people in the press should have. Voting members of Congress are being denied access from being able to see what's happening behind the closed doors where they're trying to impeach the president of the United States with a one-sided set of rules. Scalise continued, they call the witnesses. They don't let anybody else call the witnesses. Uh, We're going to go and see if we can get inside. Well, they didn't get inside, but the 30 House Republicans flooded the room with Laura Cooper, who observes uh, overseas, rather, Ukraine policy at the Department of Defense, was set to testify. Well, because there was no agreement for non-committee members to be present, this sit-in, as some have referred to it, created an immediate standoff. 
Uh, Schiff didn't uh, ask the U.S. Capitol Police to arrest or remove the Republicans who charged in, but he did leave the room and apparently didn't plan to start the interview until the situation was resolved. Well, it was unproductive, uh, except that uh, the Republicans who oppose the way this um, impeachment inquiry is being conducted, uh, they pretty much uh, captured the media's attention for the day. Meanwhile, uh, one uh, observer, Doug Burns, who is a former federal prosecutor in the criminal division of the Eastern District of New York and a practicing attorney, said that Democrats may end up walking away from their effort to impeach the president. Now, this is a view that's difficult to appreciate at this point, but he was speaking on uh, Deep Dive, Fox Nation's program on Wednesday. He said that the elephant in the room is that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who's concerned about the 2020 election, opted not to ask for full House Uh, to vote on the question of opening a formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Instead, she announced that an impeachment inquiry had begun, breaking precedent regarding those proceedings. You don't have to be a rocket scientist, he went on to say, or an MIT professor to know that they didn't do a vote because they didn't want to have Democratic House members stand up in districts that were against it and have uh, to vote for it. Burns added that some moderate Democrats are hesitant to declare their support for impeachment. This gives them at least some cover for now. predicted that Democrats will eventually abandon their impeachment push, saying, I think they're going to come out and say, we do not want to put the American people through this type of debacle. However, of course, it's fully warranted. And uh, they have leaked enough of the one-sided version of what's happened in the hearings that they can accomplish what ultimately is the goal, and that is the 2020 election. Well, Wall Street Journal editorial board member William McGurn said that he's skeptical of Burns' theory. I don't see how Ms. Pelosi, once she's taken this step, I don't see how you can do it. And I think that if you don't impeach the president. It looks like another Mueller report. All these promises, we're going to get him. We finally got him on the ropes and we don't do it. I find it hard to believe the House won't impeach. Well, there's lots of speculation back and forth, uh, but nonetheless, that's um, uh, what some are suggesting might be the outcome on either side of that equation. Well, Representative Karen, rather Carolyn Mulroney, a Democrat from New York, the new acting chairwoman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, is highly unpopular with one prominent constituent, and that's the president. Oversight is one of six committees House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has tapped to run the impeachment inquiry. It just so happens Maloney's 14th congressional district in Manhattan includes Trump Tower. But she and other impeachment committee chairs also come to the political fight of the decade with past controversies that could be magnified as the president and his allies look to fight back. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, the de facto leader on the impeachment, already Eddie has faced an ethics complaint and a failed bid by Republicans to censure him for how he conducted the inquiry thus far. Maloney, Schiff and other lawmakers at the helm are likely to face more GOP attacks in the weeks ahead. Meanwhile, I'm wondering where they're fitting in the people's business, but well, I digress. Uh, these committees have turned the machinery of government into one big political machine. Tom Anderson, who's the director of the Government Integrity Project at National Legal and Policy Center, a uh, government watchdog group, in cases of President Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton, the full House voted to establish an impeachment inquiry handled by the Judiciary Committee with public hearings. In the case of Trump, Pelosi unilaterally announced an inquiry and named six committees to probe. 
Maloney ascended to acting chairwoman after the death of Representative Elijah Cummings last week. The Oversight Committee has been heavily involved with the House Select Committee on Intelligence and the House Foreign Affairs Committee in seeking documents and testimony from Trump administration officials and associates regarding allegations the president linked USA to Ukraine with a request um, for political favors. The Judiciary, Financial Services and Ways and Means Committees are also involved. Spokespersons for the six committees, uh, chairs rather, did not respond to inquiries, but... um, among those leading the charge, as I mentioned, Carol Maloney is among the wealthiest members of Congress. Most of her um, non-congressional income reportedly is from real estate partnership. Among those are Linkhorn uh, Place Associates, which owns two Virginia Beach apartment complexes. The New York Daily News, which reported tenants complained about the problems of the units with one using the term slumlord. The landlords were described as quick to kick tenants out. Well, you know, is that a legitimate complaint or not? Uh, a spokesperson for the Congresswoman said that the uh, that she was a defender of affordable housing, rent regulation and tenant protection and had inherited a non-managerial passive minor interest in this apartment complex. Also in 2017, the Washington Free Beacon reported that Maloney traded between $363,000 and $1.3 million in municipal bonds after co-writing a bipartisan bill to encourage banks to buy back bonds. Adam Schiff has come under a uh, shift. There's no T on the end has come under fire for making up a parody dialogue between the president and the Ukrainian president of the United States, I should say, and the Ukrainian president during an intelligence committee hearing. He also faced criticism for not being forthright about whether his office communicated with the Ukraine call whistleblower before the complaint. The Tea Party Patriots filed a complaint with the Office of Congressional Ethics over what it called a violation of House Rules 22, uh, which would be a pattern of misconduct. He also made claims that he had um, incontrovertible evidence of the president's um, uh, um, misdeeds prior to the Mueller report, which he never provided. Then there's Jerry Nadler. He's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. He hasn't faced accusations of ethical lapses, but the impeachment battle might mark the culmination of a decades-long rivalry between him and Trump. When Nadler served in the New York State Assembly in the late 80s, he fought Trump's efforts to get approval for an apartment development in Manhattan's Upper West Side, which was going to be called Trump City. Trump wanted it to include a TV studio, private park and shopping mall. As a state lawmaker, Nadler sided with community activists opposing that project. Nadler has uh, faded to the background, said one observer, maybe uh, that is because of his last relationship with Trump. Nadler's view on impeachment has changed significantly since um, the Clinton era. Nadler once called the effort to impeach Don, to impeach Bill Clinton rather in 98 a coup d'etat and said members of Congress have no power. Indeed, they have no rights to arrogate to themselves the power to nullify an election absent such a compelling threat. Then there's Maxine Waters. The House Ethics Committee cleared House Financial Services Chairwoman Waters of allegations in 2012 that she steered a $12 million federal bailout to a Massachusetts bank. The committee did, however, determine that her then chief of staff, uh, standards, the uh, violated House standards by taking action to help the bank get funding. A Federal Elections Commission complaint filed last year focused on her use of slate uh, uh, mailers and how her family members are allegedly making money as a result of her campaign. There's Elliot Engel. In 2009, the Maryland Department of Assessment and Taxation revoked a state tax credit uh, to Representative Engel, now the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He campaigned as a lifelong resident of the Bronx, but listed his 
his Potomac, Maryland home as his primary residence. The credit required homeowners to live in Maryland six months of the year, have a Maryland driver's license, file Maryland income tax and have a Maryland driver's license. Engel had a New York driver's license and voted in New York. Again, all of this is likely to come up. Also, Richard Neal, in September, a government watchdog group filed a complaint with the Office of Congressional Ethics against the House Ways and Means uh, Chair, uh, claiming he used his government-funded congressional Facebook page to run campaign ads before his 2018 primary. Again, all of this likely to be an issue as uh, the Republicans fight back against the inquiry that is now ongoing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk about Tim Ryan. He's dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. We'll tell you more about that and other news when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Ohio Democratic Representative Tim Ryan has dropped out of the 2020 presidential race and announced he will instead run for re-election for his congressional seat. He entered the race in April, said he was proud of his seven-month campaign. We've given voice to the forgotten communities and the forgotten people in the United States, he said in a statement. He also tweeted a video message. While it didn't work out quite the way we planned, this voice will not be stifled. I will continue to advocate and fight for the working people of this country, white, black, brown, men and women, he said. I'll continue to fight, and I appreciate all of the effort on behalf of our volunteers, our staff, all of those who uh, chipped in money and made a sacrifice to help get this campaign up and running, he said, adding his deep heartfelt thanks to his wife and children for picking up the slack while he's been on the campaign trail. Ryan was one of the more moderate candidates in the 2020 Democratic primary field. Notably, he had sharply criticized primary rivals backing a Medicare for all plan, describing it as a potential political disaster for the party's election hopes. He even clashed with Senator Bernie Sanders at the July primary debate after casting doubt on Sanders' claim that the policy would provide certain benefits. I wrote the expletive bill, Sanders memorably exclaimed in response. Well, early in his campaign, Ryan emphasized that the Midwest is a unique area of the country that's been left behind, suggesting he could connect with the region better than any other candidates. Prior to announcing his bid for the White House, the eight-term congressman led an unsuccessful intra-party effort to unseat Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House. Instead, he has uh, walked away from his 2020 presidential race, but will seek re-election to the House, the House seat that he currently holds. Well, PG&E has begun deliberately shutting off power to 17 northern and central California counties to reduce the risk of sparking wildfire through their electric grid system, with forecasts that could create conditions for electrical equipment to ignite wildfires. You'll recall what happened last year. The utility company confirmed the power outages Wednesday morning as it moves forward with the public safety power shutoff protocol in parts of the Sierra Foothills and uh, North Bay, as well as Kern and San Mateo counties. The decision to shut off power comes uh, in response to a forecast of hot, dry and windy weather, the combination of which poses an increased risk for wildfires caused by sparks on the company's electric system. The power outage will affect approximately 180,000 customers throughout 17 California counties, affecting about 450,000 people. The counties affected by the outages are Alpine, Amador, Butte uh, and several others. Yuma, Sonoma, Sierra, and again others. The shutoffs began at about 2 p.m. in the Sierra Foothills region 
in um, North Bay counties uh, on Thursday, San Mateo and Kern counties. Weather forecasts show that peak wind speeds will end about noon today in North uh, North Bay, San Mateo County and Sierra foothills with peak wind periods expected to end by noon on Friday in Kern counties. So if you're a transplant from California, having lived in any one of those areas, you can be grateful that when you turn the light switch on here in Oregon and Washington, it's actually going to come on. Well, a Texas dad's desperate battle to keep his seven-year-old child from undergoing a gender transition championed by the biological male's mother has captured the attention of conservatives nationwide, including the Lone Star State's governor, who announced a review of the case by top officials, even as all involved await a pivotal court ruling that could alter the youngster's life forever. Jeff Younger petitioned the court earlier this month for sole custody of his twins, James and Jude, in an effort to prevent their mother, Dr. Ann Gregorius, uh, from allowing James to begin hormone replacement therapy. Jeff Younger petitioned earlier this month for sole custody of his uh, twins, James and Jude, in an effort to prevent the mother from moving forward. According to uh, Gregolius, the mother who works as a pediatrician, James is transgender, identifies as a girl, likes to wear dresses and goes by the name Luna. Younger believes the opposite, however, and is arguing James is a happy boy and a social transition or medical transition would not be in his best interest. James' mom, who is divorced from Jeff Younger, initially filed a petition for joint conservatorship, which required Younger to affirm the child's identity by using the name Luna, something recommended by James' therapist. In response, Younger, the father, filed for sole custody. But on Monday, a jury returned a verdict in favor of the mother. Although a judge will have the final say over the custody battle, Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, waded into the controversy Wednesday night as the case began making ripples nationwide, saying the state will be reviewing the case. Well, the matter of seven-year-old James Younger is being looked into uh, by the Attorney General's Office and the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, Ad, uh, Abbott tweeted. A judge's decision in favor of the mother could allow her to move forward with plans to potentially give James puberty blockers after she received a letter of recommendation from Dallas Rainbow Therapy, therapy rather, urging James to receive a full psychological assessment for gender dysphoria and potentially take hormone blockers. The father would like to move forward without um, any kind of surgery or uh, hormone therapy, believing that his son, first of all, does not want to identify as a girl and will eventually, as is often the case, grow out of any um, apparent, according to the mother, desire to uh, live as the opposite sex. Tony Perkins writes of the case this. Children suffer when their parents struggle with one another. A tragic case in point is unfolding in Dallas, Texas, where a jury this week denied a father sole custody of his seven-year-old son. What's uncommon about this custody battle is that the boy's mother is seeking ultimately to start the child on drug treatments that would block him from beginning puberty because she claims he now identifies as a girl. A LifeSite News reports a jury in Dallas, Texas, has ruled against Jeffrey uh, Younger, the father, who's trying to protect his seven-year-old son, James, from chemical castration via a gender transition. This means James' mother, Dr. Ann Gregorius, uh, will be able to continue transitioning him into Luna and now has full authority to start him on puberty blockers and eventually cross-sex hormones. On the Washington Watch program this week, um, Peter Sprigg, 
uh, was asked, um, he's a, a Family Research Council senior fellow for policy studies, just how you determine that a seven-year-old might have gender dysphoria. And he observed, and I'm quoting, this is a claim that's being made by the mother. And as in many cases, very sad divorce cases and child custody cases, that results from divorce. There's very much of a he said, she said aspect to this. But the mother claims that the child identifies as female that wishes to be called a girl named Luna. But the father says exactly the opposite, that this child, when he is with the father, because um, up until now they have had joint custody or shared custody. When uh, he's with his father, he's perfectly happy to identify as a boy and wear boys' clothes. The thing that uh, this suggests to me, though, is that this is, uh, by definition, means that the child does not meet the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria, because to be diagnosed with uh, uh, dysphoria, a child is supposed to be consistent, inconsist- insistent rather, and persistent in asserting their gender identity that's different from their biological sex. If they only assert it in one house and not the other, that means they don't meet the criterion for gender dysphoria, end quote. Well, obviously, this is a case that's about more than just who says uh, who stays where or even um, on any given weekend, a child's future is at stake because one parent is deciding that a child needs to transition to another sex. There are health implications, spiritual implications, and so much more on the line. As Peter noted, when children are being raised by a married couple, it's up to the couple to negotiate the differences between them and raise the children. When there's a divorce, then it becomes up to the child to negotiate the differences between the parents. That's something they shouldn't have to do, end quote. Well, just to be clear, we're not talking here about a mother allowing a child to cross-dress or act as a girl. We're talking about beginning a process which would essentially chemically castrate her son. This case is a perfect example of how our actions as adults affect our children. This troubled seven-year-old boy is now in danger of becoming the product of a radical ideology that fails to regard his physical health. Unfortunately, this is not an isolated incident. Seeds of sexual confusion are being sown throughout the culture with the intent of ensnaring children. So how should we as Christians respond to this direct assault on biblical truth and scientific fact? Well, we'll talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about a 7-year-old boy at the center of a transition battle between his now-divorced parents uh, who have different versions of what the boy wants. The judge is going to make the final decision, and the governor of the state of Texas is also going to weigh in. Tony Perkins, writing for the Patriot Post, asks the, asks the question, how should we as Christians respond to this direct assault on biblical truth and scientific fact? He asked uh, David Clausen from Family Research Council that very question as they discussed a Missouri church who came under fire about speaking up about the very issue. Clausen noted how one pastor wasn't afraid to engage on tough questions, saying, I really like what the pastor did in Missouri. He asked honest questions. These are questions I think all of us need to ask. Love in truth, he says. He just asked the transgender activists, are we sure this is best following the transgender ideology? It's good for... Is it good for women? Is it really good to give puberty blockers to children? And he asked a question at the end of the sermon that I think is profound. He asked the question, do we really want people's subjective internal feelings to define reality? And he makes the point that we don't do this on other issues. If someone's mind 
um, uh, tells them a lie, we try to uh, counteract that. We point them to objective truth, and that really is the most loving thing to do, end quote. Well, we are living in a day and time in which Christians are going to have to either be true to Scripture or cave to the culture. There's no middle ground. And uh, he encouraged folks in Texas to pray that this boy in Texas and other children like him around the country will find people who will stand up for them when others um, melt in the face of the culture and pressure. So this is still unresolved. And um, as early as this evening or perhaps uh, uh, tomorrow, a decision is expected. Well, math is deeply frustrating as a subject for many elementary and high school students. But Seattle public schools are gearing up to accuse math Math and intangible of a litany of more serious crimes, imperialism, dehumanization and oppression of marginalized persons. So one plus one may seem innocently two, but it really is much more. The district has proposed a new social justice infused curriculum that would focus on power and oppression and history of resistance and liberation. Not sure how multiplication, adding, and subtracting relates, but within the field of mathematics, this is what's happening in Seattle. The curriculum isn't mandatory, but provides a resource for teachers who want to introduce ethnic studies into the classroom via math. According to Education Week, Seattle's four-page framework is still in the proposal stage. If adopted, its ideas will be included in existing math classes as part of the district's broader effort to infuse ethnic studies into all subjects across K-12 through spectrum. Uh, Seattle's ethnic studies director said uh, her team hopes to have frameworks completed in all subjects by June for board of approval. Well, the proposal is drawn fire uh, from, well, both sides, but the American conservatives, Rod Dare, he referred to it it's, um, uh, derisively as woke math, writing, the young people who are going to learn real math are those whose parents can afford to put them in private schools. The public school kids of all races are going to get dumber and dumber, and this is going to compel the workers in charge of human resources at institutions along life's way to demand changing standards to fit political goals. Eventually, bridges are going to start falling down. That, too, will be the fruit of whiteness, end quote. Well, that's a hyperbolic statement, but having uh, read over the proposed framework, uh, you have to say it, it does seem fairly... Well, nonsensical. It's uh, chock full of social justice jargon that sounds smart, but is actually vapid. What does it mean to uh, decode mathematical beauty or identify how the development of mathematics has been erased from learning in school? Well, the guidelines also include some extremely political, simplistic talking points that might be popular among activist academics, but are in reality somewhat dubious. This is verbatim from the proposal. Students will be able to identify the inherent inequalities of the standardized testing system used to oppress and marginalize people and communities of color. Now, explain how math has been used to exploit natural resources and explain how math dictates economic oppression. Each of these statements are debatable, but they are not being presented as such. It would be one thing to hold a class discussion about the strengths and weaknesses of standardized testing, but what's happening here is that students are being trained to reject standardized testing due to its inherent inequality, which is asserted as some kind of proven fact. So teaching math is linked to standardized testing, so you don't have to learn it as an objective reality. Uh, that might, in fact, land you a job where you can actually count um, 
uh, your money. But if math is too daunting for students, a better option would be for schools to stop making it mandatory, giving parents and even students themselves more choice and control over their own educational experience is always a plus, and few people actually need to understand higher mathematics anyway to function in society. Infusing the existing math curriculum with a bunch of unfounded uh, assumptions about cultural appropriation is a silly approach and may leave students and others who have to live with what they don't know dumbfounded with an emphasis on, well, dumb. Well, Full House star Lori Laughlin was one of 11 parents hit with additional charges in connection with to the sweeping college cheating scandal, according to officials earlier this week. The same day it was reported the actress could opt for a plea deal. Laughlin, her fashion designer husband, Massimo something, and nine others were charged with a conspiracy to commit federal program bribery by bribing employees of the University of Southern California to facilitate their children's admission. That, according to the Department of Justice, in a press release. In exchange for the bribes, employees of the university allegedly designed the defender's children as, or rather, designated the defendant's children as athletic recruits with little or no regard for their athletic abilities, or as members of other favored admissions categories, the press release stated. Well, the parents are part of a vast conspiracy ring that came to light in March, where more than 50 parents were charged in a federal investigation now known as Varsity Blues. The increased charges were announced the day after four parents, including three former CEOs, pled guilty to charges related to the case. Uh, One other person, the former head of an elite Texas tennis academy, revealed he, too, will submit a plea. Meanwhile, it's been reported that the U.S. Attorney's Office might be more inclined to offer Laughlin, a more familiar name, a plea bargain in the wake of the fellow actress and Varsity Blues parent Felicity Huffman's light sentence of 14 days behind bars. Huffman was sentenced back in September to two weeks in prison for paying $15,000 to have her daughter's SAT scores fixed in 2017. She pled guilty in May, reported to the Federal Correctional Institution in Dublin, California, on Tuesday. She's due to be released on the 27th. That's sometime next week, just shy of her 14-day sentence, according to the Bureau of Prisons' inmate locator. Apparently, over her 14 days, she's exhibited good behavior. Laughlin and her husband are accused of paying approximately $500,000 to create non-existent positions for their daughters on the University of Southern California crew team, even though neither had ever taken part in the sport. They pled not guilty in April. But the probation department's sentencing report indicates Huffman's actions, rigging test scores, for example, affected the other applications, whereas Laughlin's bribe didn't have as big an impact, according to TMZ. Well, this combination uh, shows... Um, that the uh, the penalty will be greater in this case. Well, federal prosecutors are growing worried it will become an embarrassment for the office if Lori goes to trial, gets convicted, and gets a short sentence, adding that the U.S. attorney is open to plea discussions and that uh, is far more likely now that a possible sentence for Lori uh, could be measured in weeks and not years. Laughlin's attorneys didn't uh, respond to what strategy they intend to take, but behind, besides um, Huffman, several other parents 
who pled guilty have since been sentenced. California winemaker Augustine Honeys Jr., who paid uh, one of the highest sums out to uh, of parents' sentences so far, was sentenced to five months behind bars for spending $300,000 to get his daughter at USC. Uh, Los Angeles real estate developer Robert Flaxman, 63, who was sentenced to one month in prison for paying $75,000 to fix his daughter's college entrance exam. He copped to the guilty plea in May uh, to one count of fraud and conspiracy. And Devin Sloan, the founder of a water treatment company, who paid $250,000 to get his son into USC as a fake water polo uh, athlete, was sentenced to four months in prison and was ordered to perform 500 hours of community service and pay a fine of $95,000. Well, it must be tough uh, to be rich. Undercover recordings made by an alleged whistleblower capture CNN employees casually confirming the network's anti-Trump bias. No big surprise there. And show company president Jeff Zucker telling top news executives to focus solely on impeachment, even at the expense of other important news, according to the activist group that posted the bombshell footage online. That's Project Veritas, whose founder, James O'Keefe, describes himself as a guerrilla journalist, built up the release on social media with a hashtag ExposeCNN. And uh, Monday published the first segment of what is billed to be a multi-part series. The video features um, Carrie Porach, who claims he was a satellite uplink technician at CNN's Washington Bureau before. He says his dream job quickly turned into a nightmare due to CNN's blatant bias. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap everything up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. For those of you who join us later in the program, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you for your generous response to the Union Gospel Mission's effort to feed the homeless on our streets and not just to feed them, but to give them an opportunity to step away from life on the streets. Um, it was a successful campaign. I wanted to say thank you for the role that you played in praying for and financially supporting their efforts. So appreciate that. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to looking at the lighter side of the news. I've been looking forward to this all week. Uh, There's so much going on. It's hard to keep up with it all. And it's all very sobering and serious and sometimes frustrating and disgusting. But that aside, tomorrow we're going to look at the other stuff. We'll, um, of course, uh, do a brief overview of the day's headlines, but we'll drift off from there to the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to that. Hope you can join us. Well, I want to make sure that you are up to date. You know what's going on in the culture. You have the right vocabulary. The lexicon is growing in ways that you may not necessarily find favorable, but there are seven new words that have been added to a dictionary near you. Now, consider yourself lucky if you started learning English before last year with Merriam-Webster's Dictionary's edition of 1,373 new words and 4,000 revisions since 2018. Uh, You got in on the ground floor. It's easier to add a word or two than it is to try to embrace all that's there. Well, there are also some some words that might fall under the, well, not so happy news category. The new words include several additions and definition changes that politicize language and drive it leftward. Now, it's not a new phenomenon that language is politicized, but this is the latest leftward drift. Some of these uh, Merriam-Webster most recently left-wing words include, you might want to get a paper and pencil, the word woke. 
perhaps the most woke of all the new words. The publisher says this one is a slang term for being aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues which are subscribed or rather ascribed to you. They're not issues that you necessarily would choose for yourself, especially issues of uh, social justice. If Gillette runs an ad that suggests real violence against women can be stopped by one guy tapping another guy on the shoulder to remind him not to harass people, that's woke. So it is an unwavering allegiance to politically correct standards that are provided for you. Then there's the word they. Oh, I know, it's not a new word. We've used it quite often, but it's now no longer applies to... A group, it applies to an individual. It's a singular word at Merriam-Webster. They're saying we should use they to refer to a single person whose gender identity is non-binary. Now, how you know that um, is uh, something of a mystery. The decision follows hundreds of years of English speakers who have used words like he or she, but that's not, you know, woke enough. Then there's mansplain. The publisher says this means to explain something to a woman in a condescending way that assumes she has no knowledge about the topic. And only men are guilty of mansplaining because women are never disrespectful toward men. They are never condescending toward men. It's only the other way around. Of course, a woman could never explain anything to another woman in a condescending way either. Um, Isn't it sexist for a word to make it sound like only men can condescend? Well, again, if you're woke, you don't need to answer the question. Then there's um, Latinx. Latinx. And nothing shows respect for Latino culture like the altering of the way you say Latino because the way it's said in Spanish isn't genderless enough for the tastes of an American liberal. Merriam-Webster says Latinx means of relate of relating to or marked by Latin American heritage used as a gender neutral alternative to Latino or Latina. Consider yourself woke. Antifa. Oh, we're all too familiar with that word. It has two definitions, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary. By the way, Merriam-Webster would literally roll over in his grave if he was aware of how language has progressed. Any An anti-fascist movement or a person or group actively opposing fascism, even if they resort to fascistic activities to make their point. And nothing says opposing fascism, fascism rather, like masked people clad in black and carrying chains and crowbars who attack journalists and other targets. Again, you'll only get it if you are woke. Then there's inclusive. Oh, I know it's not a new word, but well, it's a new word with a new definition. What dictionary would be inclusive without, well, inclusive? Merriam-Webster added a meaning shifting expansion to the original definition, including everyone. So inclusive is now everyone. It's not just exclusive inclusion. It's Inclusive inclusion. Okay. The publisher adds, especially allowing and accommodating people who have historically been excluded and because of their race, gender, sexuality, or ability. So the word inclusive essentially means the same thing, but now it means in broader inclusion. So try to keep up. And then there's top surgery and bottom surgery. At the bottom of the list, uh, we've got top surgery and bottom surgery. The dictionary says the first word means a type of gender confirmation surgery in which a person's anatomy is uh, removed or augmented to match their gender identity, what they've selected uh, for their identity. The second word means gender confirmation surgery in which a person's, well, genitalia are altered to match their gender identity. It's a, well, an organ slicing surgery. Uh, said with a smile. So these are the words that have been added to Merriam-Webster. If you want to be 21st century woke, 
These are the words that you'll need to add to your vocabulary with uh, greater understanding. Even though um, you may have known words like, well, they and inclusive to mean, well, them and, well, all of us, they now mean all of us and one other person. So you figure it out. Well, as I mentioned, tomorrow on the program, we are going to take a look at the lighter side of the news and perhaps explain some elements of the culture that might be confusing to you. Uh, But if that's not the... uh, If that's not the case, well, we'll do the best that we can to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Also want to remind you that it's this time of year that we bring up the opportunity for couples to spend a weekend together that will not soon be forgotten. I'm referring, of course, to Family Life Today's Weekend to Remember. That's coming up fairly soon. It's a great chance to make an immediate impact on your marriage. My sister and her husband, they were the first to attend. Dan Rice and I attended. We sent my brother and his wife to attend a weekend to remember. And we have since uh, sent other couples uh, either that were struggling or just starting out or just wanted to have a clearer understanding of what the biblical pattern for marriage is. So it's a great conference. It's a weekend long. And one of the things I especially appreciate about it is the fact that it's not just you and she or you and he sitting in front of a lecturer. Uh, facing forward, they actually build into the weekend time for the two of you to spend time together, talking, uh, discussing what you've heard, working things out, and just enjoying one another's company. So that's coming up very soon. It's a great chance to make an immediate impact on your marriage, whether you're just starting out, need a refreshing boost, or you want some practical tools. Now the dates, November 22nd through the 24th at the Red Lion Hotel on the River. That's Jansen Beach. Uh, You can rediscover why you fell in love, how to rekindle that, gain valuable skills and resources, biblically-based insights from top speakers and marriage experts, and that's no exaggeration. And you can find out more and register today at kpdq.com. Again, Family Life Today's Weekend to Remember. And be sure to catch Family Life Today weekdays right here on KPDQ, 930 a.m. So there you have it. Once again, want to thank you for your generous response to Union Gospel Mission. I would encourage you, whether or not you were able to give financially, to make a commitment to remember them in prayer. They're approaching their 100-year anniversary serving in our community, and that's a remarkable accomplishment. We'll, um, I'm certain, spend some time focusing on that when the date actually arrives. But in the meantime, if we could just keep them in our prayers, they want to be constructive, not just enabling people who are on the streets of Portland, but as they have so effectively done over the years, provide them an opportunity to find new life where they can thrive off of the streets of the Portland metro area. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for listening to The Georgine Rice Show and making it part of your day. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.